Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. All right, I'm going to ask you, if you can find it, to grab your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis 29. What a gift, what a gift. Tonight, I do, while you're turning in your Bibles uh, to Genesis 29, I do want to invite you to come tonight because this room will be filled with praise like that, and and I cannot wait. Six o'clock tonight, um, and eager to lift our voices together in worship. Now, let me catch us up. We will begin in chapter 29, but this is no beginning, is it? We have now been making this journey for 11 weeks. We have been for 11 weeks studying the patriarchs and matriarchs, the the heroes and heroines of the faith, the, the mothers and fathers, or as we have said from the very beginning, the mamas and the papas of our Christian faith. And we've been looking at their lives because these are they who were first to recognize the distinct kind of call to follow this distinct kind of God. And in their pilgrimage of following faithfully, of living a life that's different, of living a life that's transformed by that kind of God, we've been learning lessons. We've been asking that their experiences would shape our own understanding of our experiences. Because we recognize early on that these are not perfect people. In fact, we've yet to meet any who are. But in their desire to please the Lord and to walk faithfully, we've seen them succeed and fail, rise and fall. And lately we have been with Jacob. We've made it that far into the journey. And these are the Jacob narratives, stories about Jacob. And last week, wow, last week we recognized that Jacob, Yahov, the one who is rightly named the heel grabber, the one who tricks and supplants and connives his way through life. We, we recognized last week that he had grabbed the last possible heel. He had burned all the bridges with his brother, and his brother was now out to get him, so it sent him on this journey, fleeing for his life. And we caught up with him last week in between where he had left and where he was going. He had left all of his life in Beersheba, everything that had happened in his childhood, his family of origin, all of his scheming, all of his tricking, all of his supplanting, but he has not yet made it to his new life in Haran. We caught up with him last week in that strange in-between place, between the already and the not yet, and we, we imagined a little bit together last week that so much of our lives Well, they are punctuated by those seasons. They are punctuated by seasons that are between the already and the not yet. Seasons of transition and change when it can be quite frightening to not know because all of the comforts and all of the securities of what we used to know are gone. And we've run to the end of our resources and here we are at a place where we don't know what our new comforts will be. We don't know what the new securities are going to be, the new rhythms and rituals of life. And here we are stuck between the two. 
And we recognized with Jacob last week that to his surprise and to our own, that God and God's presence and God's action is surprisingly active and near when we feel most alone. And last week we stopped with him on his way to Haran. Well, today we meet up with him when he arrives. Chapter 29, verse 1, reads this. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field and and three flocks of sheep lying there beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered together, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and then water the sheep and put the stone back on its place on the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban of Nahor? They said, We do. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, Yes. And here is his daughter Rachel coming with the sheep. He said, Look, it is still broad daylight. It is not time for the animals to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go to pasture with them. But they said, We cannot until the flocks are all gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. While he was still speaking, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she kept them. Now when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of his mother's brother Laban, And the sheep of his mother's brother Laban, Jacob went and rolled the stone away from the well's mouth and watered the flock and his mother's brother of his mother's brother Laban. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran quickly and told her father. When Laban heard the news about his sister's son, Jacob, he ran to meet him, embraced him, kissed him, and brought him into the house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for about a month. The reading of the sacred word. May God now add a blessing to the hearing, and to the doing of it. Let's pray together. God, in this moment, we humbly yield to the possibility that you can change everything. We've come into this place with a variety of burdens. We've come into this place from a variety of places. And God, we we humbly yield to the possibility that you can change everything. Open our minds and our hearts as we seek to understand your word. That your worshipers may be empowered this day. In your name we pray, amen. 
So now we catch up with Jacob, and he's now in the land of his ancestors. He's back among his original people, and he's looking for a wife. We know that this story will include some romance. We know that this story begins in this chapter, a relationship that is maybe one of the most romantic love relationships in the entire Bible, Jacob and Rachel. This the story includes not just stories about finding a wife, but why is this important for us today? Why would it be necessary for you and me to listen to an ancient story? It is rather old. Why would it be necessary for you and me to be attentive to the details of this peculiar story? I want to suggest it's because this story is filled not only with heart-racing romance, which is kind of cool, but it's also filled with gut-wrenching disappointment. Heart-racing romance and gut-wrenching disappointment, and yet the power of this story is that God's surprising presence is found in both. You know, there is sometimes a very fine and fuzzy line between the heart-racing moments in our journey, and the gut-wrenching between our hopes and our hurts, right? between our joys and our sorrows. And Somebody may have come here this day and not knowing where you fit on the spectrum, maybe you have made up your mind that, that you cannot find the presence and action of God in your particular place along the journey. This story begs to differ. Because on the one hand, it's a story about heart-racing romance. Listen, when he shows up and finds Rachel, things change. He's made it to the land of Padan Aram, and he comes up on this field where there's a well, and they're watering the sheep, or they are supposed to be. But he walks up and notices that there are three flocks there just reclining, and the shepherds are there with them. They're just lying in the middle of the day on the ground around the well. And he learns that this is because they're still waiting on another flock that's coming. You see, the well has this large stone on the top of it that covers the face or the surface of the well. And it takes all the shepherds together to move that heavy stone off. And they'll move it off and all the sheep, when they're all together, gather around and drink from it. You don't want to move it off too early. You don't want to move it off too late. So they're waiting. They're patient. And so he comes up and he says, brothers, where are you from? And the shepherds say, hey, Ron. He says, no, my name's not Ron. I'm, I'm saying, where? They say, we are from Haran. Oh, you're from Haran. Then you, you may know my relative, Laban. Do you know Laban? Oh, yeah, we know Laban. I mean, we go way back. How is Laban? Oh, he's doing, he's doing well. He's well. I'm just warming up, okay? <laughs> In fact, they say to him, yes, we know Laban, and he's doing well. In fact, there's his daughter walking up now with the other flock. And, and at that moment, something happens in Jacob because he, he turns, and the camera kind of moves in slow motion. He turns, and he's stunned. Things move slowly. There's wind in her hair, and he hears music. 
she's walking up sultry. She got her sheep with her, you know. Okay, that's good. And man, he is paying attention. He is struck by her beauty. He falls in love. And as we continue to pay attention to the rest of his stories, he is so in love, deeply in love, until his dying day with this woman. But it began at first sight. Now that's cool. And I can tell you that can happen. Because it was early in the fall of 1993. Uh-huh. When Laura first saw me, I, no, no, I'm kidding. I just, no. What I meant to say was I was leading, listen, true story, true story. I'm leading a choir retreat, gospel choir retreat, and I'm, I'm doing this devotion, and, and I'm talking to them about how it's more than music, right? Yeah. And I'm talking to them about the curiosity of a God who, in a multiplicity of ways, has the capacity to, in a multi-sensory way, meet us in all of the different ways we can perceive and sense life. And music is one of those ways, and it's so powerful. And about that time, a young sophomore with scarlet red hair raises her hand, and she, she tells the group, right, that she's a resident assistant, an RA, and there are two girls on her hall who are deaf, and she's been reflecting lately, been reflecting about how grateful she is for music because she cannot imagine a life that is absent of music because we see and hear so much about the character of God. Now, I know she kept on talking. She must have kept talking, but it began to kind of blur for me because it started in slow motion, and I'm, I'm just kind of, I'm kind of like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yes, yes. So I know that Jacob is telling the truth when he sees at first sight something that changes everything. He's in love. He's smitten. He's smitten by her. And he's so smitten that he does what every male does. He goes and tries to lift heavy stuff. <laughs> he goes over to the face of the well. I'm not kidding. This is what the text says happens next. Now, when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of his mother's brother Laban, and the sheep of his mother's brother Laban, Jacob went up and rolled the stone, this stone that required all the shepherds working together. He rolled the stone on his own away from the well's mouth and watered the flock of his mother's brother Laban. And then, whoo, then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept out loud. That was some kiss. I mean, in this demonstration of machismo, this demonstration of his virility, going to lift it and show off, and then come here, baby, and gives her a kiss, right? And at that point, I'm sure she had some things to say. I'm sure she was interpreting, but maybe she couldn't quite understand what's going on because for her, things had begun to move in slow motion, and all of a sudden, she hears music. Mm. So, what's, what's, what's a little sermon without Marvin Gaye, right? <laughs> so she is moved, he is smitten, and she says, I want you to meet my family. And he says, all right. And they move back to her home, and she introduces him to her father, and he works for her father for about a month. 
But after about a month, the father says to him, this is fantastic, it's great that you have come, but you shouldn't work for free. Name your wages, tell me what what you want, and this is where we pick up the story. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were lovely, and Rachel was graceful and beautiful. Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. This is a fascinating detail in the story. And before we move past it, I I just want to point out something that's very curious to me. If we're paying close attention, just a moment ago, when the two daughters are described, their, their physical attributes are described, and I think the translation that I used, the New Revised Standard Version, said that Leah had a tender eye, or Leah's eyes were lovely, right? That's how they described Leah's eyes, the older sister. He hadn't met Leah. Music didn't start playing for Leah. But he saw, and the text says, Leah's eyes were lovely. But I want you to know that every Hebrew scholar that I could check with will confirm that that Hebrew phrase is hard to interpret. In fact, you may even have a footnote in your Bible where it says the Hebrew meaning is uncertain right there. Because some translations treat that description of Leah's eyes differently. This is what another translation, the King King James Version reads. Leah was tender-eyed. That still kind of sounds nice, doesn't it? Still kind of sounds polite. She had tender eyes. But another translation puts it a different way. There was no sparkle in Leah's eyes. New living translation but the NIV gets even more to the point Leah had weak eyes now the question is that the truly the question is did that mean that she had weak eyesight or did it mean that she had weak eyes that there was a condition with her eyes that could not be ignored another translation puts it this way Leah had ordinary eyes and then finally the Dewey Rhymes says Leah was (laughs) blear-eyed, whatever that means, blear-eyed, which needs to be said it is entirely possible, especially because the writer is trying to set up how beautiful Rachel is, it's entirely possible that the intent of that Hebrew phrase is to let us know that she had something going on in her eyes. Was she she cross-eyed? Was she fish-eyed? Was one looking one way and one looking another way? We don't... You ever talk to somebody and you don't know, are you looking at me? It's possible. And the text leaves it open. Either way, she was not as easy on the eyes, let's put it that way, as Rachel. So they enter into the arrangement. He's going to work for seven years. And we're told that he works for seven years, but it seemed like... Just days because of his deep love for Rachel. Oh, it's so worth it. I'll work seven years, but it seems like days because my love is drawing us to this wedding, this wedding, this wedding. Then the wedding came. 
and the plot twists. So they get to the wedding, and it's a week-long celebration, and something happens at the wedding. Laban, the father, without telling Jacob, gets his daughter ready for the marriage, but secretly puts the veil and the covering upon his oldest daughter, Leah, and sends Leah into his wedding tent. And they consummate the marriage. He consummates it with what he thinks is Rachel, but wakes up in the morning and finds the haunting phrase that's listed there, when morning came, it was Leah. <laughs> Awkward. <laughs> he comes to a place where at night he goes to sleep hearing one kind of music. <laughs> yeah, there it is. But when he wakes up in the morning, he hears an entirely different music. Yeah. Uh, talk about disappointment. See, this is a story not just about heart-racing romance, but gut-wrenching disappointment. So a couple of observations. First of all, that must have been mighty strong wine <laughs> to have not recognized the wife that you'd been working for for seven years. But secondly... The heel grabber has been heel grabbed. You can't go your entire life swindling, tricking, conniving, usurping, supplanting, lying, and it not catch up with you. The Bible says that sooner or later, everything that is hidden will one day come to be revealed in glorious light. He had heel-grabbed his way all through life, and now he had met his match in Laban. Laban knew how to heel-grab himself. In fact, did you recognize that the language is important to pay attention to a moment ago when he said, hey, I'll work for seven years, and, and the language that the father offers, he doesn't say, okay, at the end of seven years, you can marry Rachel. Instead, what he says is, okay, it's better to give her to you than somebody else, so stick around. Talk about a non-answer. Right? Talk about a non-answer. And so at the end of seven years, there's this grave disappointment, and, and it's, it's powerful because his answer to Jacob was, you can't have Rachel without Leah. Can we just talk about that for just a moment? Because right there, we are, 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 are shown a tension that is in the heart of Jacob. You can't have Rachel, literally. You can't have Rachel until you go through Leah. You have to have Leah as well. But it introduces not just a tension in his heart, it introduces a tension in your heart and mine. Because, beloved, there, 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 there is somebody that you are, are being called to love. And, and whether it is a spouse or a fiancé, boyfriend, girlfriend, or, or not. Maybe it's just somebody God has put in your life, a family member, a neighbor, a co-worker, and they're, and they're right there in front of you. And I'm here to tell you that everybody that you are called to love in this world, well, they're all made up of a little bit of Rachel and a little bit of Leah. Rachel represents that part of the person that you love that is so attractive, it, you're, you're desiring it, you, you desire to pursue it and embrace it and celebrate it. In every person, there is some Rachel, and that's what draws you in the first place, makes it easy to love them. But in every person, there is also a little bit of Leah. 
Because Leah represents everything that you didn't ask for. Everything that is not attractive and not easy to deal with. And this is a conversation we have with with couples, young couples preparing for marriage because sometimes we move blindly into marriage assuming, well, yeah, he's 98% okay. I love about 98%, but that 2%, I'll change it after we're married. And all the married people in the room laugh, right? (laughs) Because, well, he may be 98% Rachel, 98% worth pursuing and embracing and celebrating and loving and affirming. But that 2%, that Leah part of him, that part I didn't ask for, that part I didn't want, that part I I, I choose to not embrace, it's going to be with him until your dying day. Because here's the truth. You can't get Rachel without Leah. Can I just get us to sit with that for a moment? Think about the person you love. Think about a person that you're loving. Whether you're married or just a friend, a neighbor, a colleague, the fact is there will be part of them that is unloving and unlovable. And it may just be a tiny part of it, but the truth is the way of faith is that you can't just choose to love part of them. You have to love all of them. That the call to love in this life is to love every bit of them because you can't just take the Rachel parts of their life. You have to first accept the Leah parts because they're not going away. You can't have Rachel without Leah. And this is what God does with us. God doesn't just choose to love the best parts of us. God loves all of us with all of our troubles, all of our unresolved and unredeemed places. God loves us first fully. It says it this way in Romans. For while we were still weak, while we were still blear-eyed, while we didn't have something worth pursuing, something attractive, while we didn't have something in us that was perfect, while we were weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person. Someone might actually dare to die. But God proves God's love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The truth is, if you want to live in the way of faith, what Leah and Rachel are demonstrating, what what Jacob is demonstrating, is you can't just love the lovable parts of the people in your life. You have to love the people in your life and trust God with those yet-to-be-redeemed parts of their life. 100%. You know, didn't our Lord also talk to us about loving our enemies? He said, love, love your enemies, right? That's a, that's a key character trait of, of those who call themselves Christians. We love enemies, right? We don't talk bad about them. We don't destroy them. We love them, right? Well, I don't know about you, But my worst enemy is me. I mean, my worst enemy is me. It's the enemy in a me. (laughs) And what if the person that God has put in front of you to love, what if their worst enemy is themselves as well? What if they trip up over themselves all the time? What if their Rachel is always sabotaged by their Leah all the time in them? Are you following me? If so, is it possible for you in your journey of faith to learn not only to love the Rachel in them, but to love their worst enemy, their own Leah? 
think this is what the church has to do a better job of in the 21st century. Because the world around us recognizes that we have a pretty bad track record of only paying attention to the perfected parts of their lives, and we shun and reject and condemn and judge all the unredeemed parts, all, all the parts that are not attractive, all the parts that we don't embrace, right? But what if we were to learn to truly love? Love, period. And allow God to work out the unresolved places. This is what happens with Jacob. His love for, for, for Rachel is so deep that he's willing to to work another seven years, which raises an interesting possibility. Is it possible that the person that you are called to love, you can focus on the Rachel in them enough to help you get over the hurdle of loving their, their Leah? Let your love for what is good in them, let your love for what is right, what is attractive, what drew you in the first place, let your original love for them be the strength that enables you to love their whole person. See, this story is not just about heart-racing romance. It's about gut-wrenching disappointment. And I'm not just talking about Jacob because Leah and Rachel lived with disappointment as well. Rachel was loved. In fact, all through the rest of Scripture, through these Scriptures especially, she is described as the one who is loved by Jacob, but guess what Rachel doesn't have going for her? I mean, she's beautiful, she's charming, she's graceful. We read all of that in the text, but guess what she doesn't have? A baby. I mean, she's barren, much like the theme that we've already seen in Jacob's mother and in Jacob's grandmother. Here the pattern repeats again, and she can't have a baby. She's got everything, according to Leah. Rachel has everything she needs because she's loved, but she doesn't have that. And she has to look every day in the face of Leah, who can't stop having babies. Because Leah, while she's unloved by Jacob, is as fertile as the Tennessee River Valley. She has a baby every other chapter, every other verse. She's having another baby. And yet here's the trouble. If you were to ask Rachel, she would say, I would trade my life for Leah's any day so that I can have a baby. If you were to ask Leah, Leah would say, oh, I'd take Rachel's place any day. I'd stop having babies so that I could be loved by my husband because that's something I'll never have. And the two of them are in this excruciating trap that we call the comparison trap where all they are able to do is not recognize the thing that they've been given that Rachel is loved deeply by her husband that Leah is able to produce life to create life they can't see what they've been given but rather they only see the thing that they're missing the comparison trap is something you and I know about because we we get stuck in the comparison trap when we look at somebody else's blessing and the way that God is blessing someone else, and we assume that if our life is absent from those particular blessings, then somehow there's something wrong with us. When we compare our inside life to their outside life, we're doomed. We allow ourselves on the interior to be shaped by what we think of their exterior. It's a trap every time. And either one of them would have traded places in a heartbeat. Just think of Leah for a moment. Every time she had a baby, she'd 
She would give the baby a name, and the names that she would give her babies indicated this kind of unmet desire that she kept having. She named her first one Reuben, which means I'm seen. Maybe now my husband will see me. Maybe now I'll count. She named her her second son Simeon, which means I'm heard. Now I'll be heard. Now I'll be validated. Now I will have a, a place at the table. She names another one Levi, which means I'm attached. Finally, this will connect me. And she lives out the very thing that you and I live out when we can't produce. Or when we do produce. We, sometimes we produce and create and give birth to life, not just babies, but to a degree, a job, a business, an accomplishment, so that we can somehow be seen, be heard, be connected, because somewhere along the way we weren't, I don't know, And she is in this relentless pursuit to be loved, and it's just not happening. And yet she's creating life. And she would trade places with Rachel any day, and Rachel would trade places with her any day. And yet there's something to pay attention to here in the text. You and I typically self-sabotage when we measure our lives by the the blessings of someone else's life. But we forget the very same thing that they forgot, that God deals with people one at a time, that God has the capacity to bless each of us in distinct ways that don't have anything to do with one another. Do you remember the story of Cain and Abel? He affirmed Abel's blessing, but Cain couldn't recognize the possibility that this God may be a God who can affirm something without making it all about me. And kills his brother. You remember the story about the prodigal son? This guy goes and wastes everything in his life, and then he comes home, and the father is so filled with love that the father throws a party, and he accepts his son who had been rejecting him, and, and now he's throwing this great party, but the older brother is all upset because you never threw a party like that for me. And the older bro- brother is, is unable to recognize that the father can love the young one and it not diminish the father's love for the old one. This isn't... The love of God is is not a pie. If you get a slice, it doesn't mean somebody else doesn't get a slice. The love of God is infinite. And they fail to see, the very thing that we fail to see is that God deals with us one at a time. Remember when Jesus is talking to Peter on the beach after he's resurrected from the dead and he says to Peter, look, Peter, Here's some things I need from you. My calling for you, my blessing for you, the thing I need from you is this, this, and this. And Peter's first response is, yeah, but what about him? What about John? And Jesus says, what's it to you? That's not a direct translation, by the way, but that's... I will deal with him as I deal with him and you as I deal with you because this is critical to understand. Even though Rachel would have traded places with Leah and Leah would have traded places with her uh, sister any day of the week and twice on Sunday, it's important to pay attention where their lives ended up. Because when Rachel finally does have a baby, when, when Rachel finally does have a baby, it's Joseph. Joseph who all the other brothers beat up and sell into slavery down in Egypt. 
They leave him for dead, and he's gone into slavery, or into, they sell him as a slave to Egypt. And many years pass, and a drought, a famine comes to the land. And when their family has to go to Egypt to survive, lo and behold, guess who has risen to a position of authority? Joseph, who is able to care for his family. Well, Joseph's mother was Rachel. But sooner or later, a Pharaoh rose to power that didn't know Joseph, and he he turned all of the people of Israel into slaves for 400 years, which would mean that eventually they would need a deliverer to come and rescue them from Egyptian slavery. So this big sister one day puts a baby brother in a tiny reed basket, sends him down the Nile. His name is Moses. Moses delivers the people. Guess who Moses' matriarch was? Not Rachel. Leah. And Moses then takes the people out of bondage into the wilderness for 40 years on the way to the promised land. But guess who doesn't get to lead them into the promised land? Moses can't go into the promised land. He leads them to the edge there in the plains of Moab. Guess who is required? Another leader named Joshua. Joshua's matriarch, not Leah, Rachel. Rachel then, many generations later, her offspring is Saul. The very first king, I'm sorry, Rachel's offspring is Saul, the very first king of Israel. But his kingship is cut short by a young shepherd boy named David whose matriarch was Leah. And it's from the the line of David that many generations later, a child is born of a virgin and the world is saved. But it required both. Yeah, it required Rachel and Leah. And despite Rachel and Leah's inability to recognize that their despair would actually be the birthplace of humankind salvation, they couldn't see it at the time. Why wouldn't it be the very same with you and me? Why wouldn't it be the very same thing that the thing you interpret as just just the pits, the thing that you interpret as somehow the curse of God, somehow the neglect, the absence of blessing, Why wouldn't it be that the very thing that you can't see may be the pathway to salvation? Because God is in both heart-racing romance and gut-wrenching disappointment. And there is one verse in the book of Romans that ties it all together. In the eighth chapter, we read these words, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. But there is another translation of that great verse that I seem to embrace a little more readily because it says it in a, in a kind of a different way. It puts a, a, a different emphasis on a different syllable. <laughs> it puts it this way, in all things, God works for good for those who love God and for those who are called according to his purpose. That means in all things. Rachel, I know that you're disappointed because you've not given birth. Leah, I know that you're disappointed because you've created and you've given birth, but but you don't feel connected to the very one who loves, who's meant to love you. I, I know, I know, but in all things, in all things, 
God is working. God is up to something in you right now. And you may never know the salvific possibility that rests in your life right now. So we walk by faith. Let's pray together. God, we just stop for a moment to acknowledge that this, this is true. This is true. That you're always up to something and we rarely see it, God. We... In fact, Lord, we confess to you that there are some days when we would rather trade places with others because our impression of their external blessings seems so much more impression, uh, impressive than, than how you've blessed us. We would trade lives with people at any, at any moment and yet show us that the way of faith, show us now, Lord, that the way of faith is about yielding to the power of your action in our lives even as we speak. Show us how to see both the Rachel and the Leah and to love it all. We pray these things in the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen.